Well, hey, everybody, so great to be with you. And a special greeting to those of you who are joining us uh, for the first time today, whether you are here in the room or joining us online, really from wherever you are. Uh, now, before we go any further, I need to thank my fearless co-leader, Randy Wasink, who you just saw up on stage for teaching for me last week. Uh, my wife, Sarah Ann, and I got to spend a few days in Turkey, which that's like paradoxical. Why would you go to Turkey for a few days? But that's how we roll, okay? Uh, and we were there with a group of pastors preparing for a series on the book of Revelation that I plan to roll out this fall, and I think it's going to blow your minds, okay? Oh, the magical TV works. How about a, how about a round of applause for Randy? Yeah, we were, we were ready to go without the TV, but it's back like the Empire. All right, that's a slow joke, Star Wars. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so my wife and I were in Turkey. I wanted to show you just a couple quick pictures uh, to whet your appetite. This one was taken uh, in front of the theater in the city of Ephesus, which is where the New Testament letter to the Ephesians was written. On the day this picture was taken, the temperature was a balmy 108. I know. So I'm, we're not going back in July anytime soon. That's all I'm saying. Or August. I guess it's not even July anymore. Uh, anyway, and here's another shot. Uh, I took a selfie. Uh, this is me. <clears throat> in a museum with the head and fist of a Roman emperor named Domitian, who was one of the bad guys in the ancient world. And I cannot wait to share what we learned about him with you starting this October. So something to look forward to. But today, we are in the fifth week of a series that I've called Castaway. And as I mentioned, I think it's one of the most interesting, intriguing sets of talks that I've ever assembled, and it's based on a framework uh, that I developed for an assignment years ago in a seminary class that was designed to teach future pastors how to think and articulate why we believe what we believe, like about God, about Jesus, about life, and about church. And if you think about it, that's not a bad thing for us pastors to know how to do. Um, anyway, the assignment was to imagine that you found yourself stranded on a deserted island that upon exploration wasn't completely deserted. Uh, because one morning when you're out for a walk, like the sun is rising, you come on a guy who's been a living alone on the island for years. And not surprisingly, like he is so pumped to have another human being to talk to. He's can only talk to turtles for so long before losing one's mind. And, and so you spend, you know, some time getting to know one another. And eventually the conversation turns to religion. And he confesses to you that uh, though he's been fascinated by people of faith for a long time. He's never really become one. And he said he just never really felt like faith was necessary in order to make sense of the world and of life. And then he asks you how you came to believe what you believe. And so the assignment for the class was to outline what you might say in a hypothetical situation like that. And the content that I developed, that framework for that assignment, eventually became sort of the outline for this set of talks. So, so kind of a fun setup, a kind of a summary version, but uh, by way of review, and for the benefit of those of you who weren't with us for the past few weeks, um, I began this series by laying out, as best I could, the case for a creator. In other words, I chased down the answer to the question, like, how can any rational person, like someone who's trying to be honest about the world in which we find ourselves, ever come to believe that we're not here by accident? And I noted that for me, at least, in the end, after considering the evidence presented to us by really smart people like astronomers and physicists and biologists and geneticists, I'm actually convinced that it takes a lot of faith not to believe in a creator. It really does. His fingerprints are all over our world, or as I like to say, or maybe our fingerprints are all over 
his world. Uh, anyway, that was the conclusion of, of week one. Uh, then in week two of the series, I made the somewhat obvious observation, and it went like this, if there is a creator, well, then something has gone wrong. In other words, if, if there were like an original blueprint for the human experience, there's no way that our present reality reflects it. It's like on a very, very deep level, something's wrong with our world. And I think about all the things like floods and fires and droughts and tornadoes and I don't know, pandemics, right? It's like something is just not right. And moreover, if we're honest, something's wrong with us too. I mean, maybe you've noticed, but we humans, though often lovable, don't always do the things that we know we should do. Maybe it's just me, right? And we don't always, you know, stop doing the things that we know we should stop doing. And what's amazing is that the authors of the Bible, both like the Old Testament and the New Testament, they leverage a word to describe this something that's gone wrong in our world and that's gone wrong in us. And that word is sin. They use the word sin to describe both the things in our world that are broken and all of those things we humans do that are outside of our, the creator's design for our lives. All those things that take our lives in, in our relationships in the wrong direction. And here's why that's such a big deal. Uh, the authors of the Bible uh, tell us that sin always creates a sort of debt, both with whoever it was that our sinful choices harmed and, as it turns out, with God. So, Observation one, there's a creator. Observation two, if there's a creator, something has gone wrong. And it was with that uplifting thought that we landed the second week. You may remember going out, looking at your shoes, thinking we're doomed, right? But then the news got better because in weeks three and four of the series, we discussed both the human and divine response to the reality of sin. We talked about how ancient humans developed religions in an attempt to pay off the debt that their sins incurred, their debt with God or the gods or whoever was in charge, in an effort that, as we also noted, ultimately failed because ancient peoples could never really know when they had sacrificed enough, when they had paid enough to settle their relational accounts with their creator. And then we went on to note that um, what makes both Judaism and Christianity so unique, namely that instead of joining all those religious systems that began with humans blindly reaching up, trying to determine what they had to sacrifice in order to pay for their sins, Judaism and Christianity actually began with the creator making contact and providing clarity. God wanted the ancient Jewish people to know that though their sins had created a debt with him, he desired for them to know how to repay those debts and when they had repaid enough. And as we said, that was the radically progressive nature of the ancient Jewish sacrificial system. But there's more. Because as it turns out, the entire Jewish sacrificial system was designed to point forward to the one ultimate sacrifice that would forever fix the problem of sin and pay the debts of sin. And around 2,000 years ago, that sacrifice was made when God the Creator sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to die on a cross and to bring about the end to the need for traditional religion as it had been known. In fact, the author of a letter called Hebrews that was addressed to early Jewish Christians and that was included in the New Testament of the Bible celebrates that reality when he writes, 
For by one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, he, God, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. He goes on. He says, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. In other words, Jesus on the cross paid the debts for all sin and all time. For anyone who wants to receive that gift, the sacrifices can stop. And now all people everywhere are invited to accept this reality and to enter a new sort of relationship with their creator, one that's not dependent on our faithfulness to him, but one that is solely dependent on his faithfulness to us. Are we preaching? Hmm. Yes. And by the way, the first people to hear this news called it gospel, which literally translates good news because it was, it was the best news ever. All right, so that concludes our admittedly extensive review, but the series kind of builds one week to the next. And it also sets the stage for what comes next because at this point in my hypothetical conversation with Beach Dude, um, I imagine that he would say something like this. You know, man, if that's true, that's incredible. I mean, the idea that the creator of the universe would desire to rescue people even after we turned away from him, I mean, both individually and collectively, that's, that's pretty inspiring. Honestly, um, that's the sort of self-sacrificing love that our world really could use some more of. And if he said something like that, I'd respond, interesting you should bring that up <laughs> because that's actually what we need to talk about Next, and here's what I mean. The sacrifice of Jesus brought about the end of religion as it had been known, but not the end of the story. Because as it turns out, uh, God wasn't only after mitigating our sin problem. He had something much bigger, something much better in a sense in mind. He actually desired, well honestly, he desires to partner with people who've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus to make things more like he wants them to be on earth right here and right now. And he wants to do this by teaching followers of Jesus a new way to be human, a way that leverages the same sort of self-sacrificing love that God demonstrated when Jesus died on the cross. Like he went first and then he invites us to follow. And, and here's the amazing thing, and this is just stunning when you think about it. Over the past 2,000 years or so, followers of Jesus have done just that. Now, not perfectly, not by a long shot, but in a way that was undeniably effective. And they changed the world for the better. In fact, uh, the worldview of us 21st century Americans has been profoundly influenced by the teachings of Jesus, whether we are aware of it or not. Uh, here, here's what I mean. Uh, you know, a few years back, I found a book on uh, a friend's shelf and borrowed it. It was called Jesus in Beijing. And it was written by a guy named David Aikman who served as the bureau chief for Time Magazine in Beijing in the 1990s. And in the introduction to that book, uh, Aikman describes this lecture that he attended in 2002 given by a scholar from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. That guy you want at your birthday party, don't you? Probably a great, great time. Anyway, uh, in which, and then during this lecture, he says this scholar describes China's forensic analysis of the success of the American economy. Like they wanted to discover our secret sauce. And here's what this Chinese scholar concluded. 
He says, at first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we did. That makes sense. He said, that wasn't it. So then we thought it was because you had the best political system. And we can all just giggle. <laughs> Maybe compared to China. Next, he said, it's like the unity. And the, anyway, um, next, he said, we focused on your economic system. But he says, but in the past 20 years, we've realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. He says, that's why the West has been so powerful. If you caught the talk's title today, that's why the West was won. He said, the Christian moral foundation of the social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism. And, he goes on, then the successful transition to democratic policies. He says, we don't have any doubt about this. And the researcher goes on to note that when Christianity enters rural China, life gets better for all involved. He says, like, drug use goes down, crime rates go down, and individual wealth and well-being grows. In other words, Christianity, followers of Jesus, make a positive difference in both culture and in the world. And, and there's a good reason why. You see, Jesus taught his followers a way of life that is not natural for us humans, but it is vastly better Here's what I mean. Historically speaking, when we humans follow what comes naturally, we behave poorly. <laughs> we, we behave actually a lot like animals. We look out for ourselves. Self-protection becomes a rule of the day, and we organize our society around things like the survival of the fittest. It reminds me of something I witnessed during a safari my wife and I got to uh, go on. We don't actually travel that much, but that's two travel stories in one talk, so we're here most of the time. But anyway, uh, back in 2006, we visited a missions partner in Africa, and while we were there, we got a chance to go on a safari. Uh, and so we flew on a small plane from Nairobi, Kenya, the capital, uh, to a region called Maasai Mara. Think like the Lion King, the... Like that Lion King opening scene, yeah. And so we landed um, on this grassy runway and were greeted not by like a control tower, but like by this guy in a loincloth holding a spear. <laughs> that was the welcome committee, right? I was like, he looks dangerous. Um, and, uh, and then uh, we were taken to this hotel that was actually a series of tents and we spent the night and then the next day we woke up before the sunrise and we loaded onto a minivan which was going to take us on our safari. And I, of course, raised my hand and I was like, and the brochures, it's like a really cool vintage Range Rover, great for the social media account. And they were like, um, those are for the rich people. Good to know. Okay, anyway, so 20 minutes or so into our safari, we came upon one of these a sleeping lion. And so very slowly the minivan rolls to a stop and the guide goes, and he didn't have to go, because there was like a lion right there. And as we're taking pictures of the lion, a few of these walked in front of our minivan, apparently unaware of the aforementioned lion. Uh, and as we watched, the lion slowly opened his eyes and began to move along the side of our vehicle like a ninja. And our guide opens his eyes really big and smiles and he says, let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> and in short order, the lion lunged at the antelopes and the antelopes ran for their lives. It's safe to say it was not a great day to be an antelope on the savannah. Uh, I would also point out it is almost never a great day to be an antelope on the savannah because of what comes naturally to lions. Anyway, historically speaking, when humans follow what comes naturally to us, it's not very pretty either. 
I mean, if you're the biggest and the strongest and the most powerful and the most resourced human around, you naturally come up with things like, well, racism and adultery and infanticide and cheating and lying and revenge and slavery. All the stuff that, if we're honest, we'd be better off without. But historically speaking, humans have done this sort of stuff over and over and over again. And that reality serves as powerful evidence that because of sin and without outside intervention, humans are undeniably bent towards ourselves. Which I would point out to the guy on the beach brings me back to Jesus. Because whether you realize it or not, Jesus invited people in the ancient world and invites people like you and me today to live beyond what comes naturally and to find both a better life for ourselves and to be part of helping build a better world in the process. And here's what's so interesting. The first followers of Jesus, they did it. They caught this better vision for their lives and for their world. And and in fact, there's a New Testament letter called Acts, A-C-T-S. It's the actions of the first disciples. It's the fifth book in your New Testament after the four accounts of Jesus' life. And the author describes the early Christian community in Jerusalem. And, And the description is just stunning when you consider the world in which they lived. He says this. He says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. He says, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. He goes on, he says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's the Jewish temple. He says, then they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then I love this last line. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In other words, as followers of Jesus lived the sort of life Jesus invited them to live, this self-sacrificing love, this new way to be human began to emerge and the light from this community began to shine into their world. And, and certainly, you know, this, the, the early community wasn't perfect, but they were doing something different. They were doing something better Because they came to understand that the natural way of their culture was morally and ethically bankrupt. And they caught a glimpse of a better way. And as the light from this community began to shine, people who also could see the moral and ethical bankruptness, that's not a word, I know, save your emails, right? But they began to be drawn to the light and they joined the Jesus community first by the hundreds, then by the thousands, and then by the tens of thousands. Okay, now with the brief time that remains, what I want to do is ask a really important question. And it goes like this. What was the vision for life that these first Christians caught that proved to be so transformative? What was it that drew them beyond selfishness to live lives of service to one another? And actually, it's pretty easy to catch because if you read the rest of those, the New Testament, it's these letters written by mainly this pastor named Paul who's trying to coach these young Christians in the way of Jesus. And I want to show you a section of a letter that he wrote to Christians living in the city of Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire and for all practical purposes, the capital of the world 2,000 years ago. And in this letter, Paul challenges early Christians with these words. He says, Therefore... I urge you, brothers, you say, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, here he is, you know. In view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done for you, therefore, offer your bodies as living 
sacrifices. You know, I, thought, I thought Jesus on the cross got rid of sacrifices. Well, yeah, the sort of sacrifices you need to make in order to get right with God, yes. But now there's a different sort of sacrifice that's emerged. It's a living sacrifice, and it's all of you. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, uh, Paul writes that essentially the call on every Christian life is to move from selfishness to sacrifice. An application is true for all of us who are followers of Jesus today. This was true 3,000 years ago, and this is true for us in Ada, right? Jesus wants us to move from selfishness to sacrifice because of what God has done for us. Paul says, in view of his mercy, in, in, in view of the grace you've been shown. It's like you are to open up your hands and open up your lives to something bigger than yourself. A life of sacrifice in response to a God who made the ultimate sacrifice. And as Paul continues, he unpacks how one might begin to make the shift. And so he says it this way. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's almost like Paul is saying, listen, you may have never thought about it this way, but the world in which we live has a pattern. It has a set of expectations for how life works that, that people naturally fall into, that you naturally fell into without trying. Culture moves like a river, right? It's summertime. Some of us like to go tubing down a river. All you got to do to go down the river is pick up your legs and let the current carry you. And Paul says that's how culture works. And if you just pick up your legs and let the current of culture carry you, you'll find yourselves falling into the natural patterns that really aren't great for you and they really aren't good for anyone else. He says, but Jesus wants to transform the way you do life. And in order for that to happen, you must first acknowledge the destructive and selfish patterns that have marked your lives. And you must consciously decide to move in counterintuitive directions from selfishness to sacrifice. And as Paul continues, you know, he gets really practical. Here's what he says next. He says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In other words, the renewing of the mind that he tells us we need to do begins with the proper perspective. He's like, you got to remember who you are. You got to remember whose you are now in Christ. You got to remember the grace that he has shown you when Jesus died on the cross. And you must remember that you are not the center of the universe and you're not even the star of your own story. He is. And you're not on the planet to exert the power and influence and resources that you have been entrusted at the expense of others. That that's not why you're here. You've been called out of that into something better. And a few verses later, Paul writes this. He says, be devoted. This is how this looks practically. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's like your family now. You've stepped out of the ways of the world. You've stepped into a new community. You need to think of one another as family. And so be devoted to your fellow believers as you are to family. And what's fun is this, this one another phrase, alone in the Greek. Thank you. I took Greek for three years. <laughs> okay, anyway, that's, that's all. It doesn't mean anything. It just means one another, but I think it's fun to say. Um, this is one of the 32 times in the New Testament that the phrase one another occurs. 32 times. Paul says over and over and over again, you need to... One another, one another. It's not just about you. Leave selfishness behind. Move to a life where you're a living sacrifice. It's like as followers of Jesus begin to understand what God has done for them, it's like our perspective is supposed to shift. 
And we begin to see that the way of Jesus, to actually follow Jesus, means to live an others-oriented lifestyle. Like that little voice that rises up inside of all of us in unhealthy moments, like, you know, this is not fair, I, you know, don't they know who I am? Like that doesn't have a part of the Christian life. And if we can do that, if we can move from selfishness to sacrifice, it's like that changes everything. And here's the thing. That perspective actually did change everything. As Christians pursued the call to counterintuitive living, again, not perfectly, but the movement was in the right direction, they began to act differently. These early believers began to look out for each other, and then they began to look out for people who even didn't agree with what they believed. And, and over time, they captured the attention of the Roman Empire, the most powerful military political establishment the world had ever seen. As the way of Jesus spread from Jerusalem, early Christians began first to influence and then to challenge and then to change and transform their culture. They began to demonstrate in flesh and blood some incredibly powerful ideas. Ideas that, it's worth noting, the world had never seen before. Ideas that we take for granted today. I made a list. Here you go. Ideas like women are not property. And that the king can't do whatever he wants. And that boys are not better than girls. And that infanticide is wrong. And ignoring the poor is a crime. I mean, I mean, these ideas in the ancient world were so radically progressive, so radically ahead of their time, that they're powerful evidence to me for the existence of a God who made contact in space and time, a God who loves the people he created in his image, and a God who desires to show them how to live in this world. Which brings me back to Beach Dude. Because at this point in my conversation, I imagine that he would say something like, wow. <laughs> I mean, I can see what you're saying. It's hard to deny. And um, honestly, it's, it's compelling. I've never thought about it in those terms, but very compelling. But he says, I got a question because um, I'm curious how early followers of Jesus were able to make such a dramatic shift in their lifestyles in the middle of a culture that was screaming at them to maintain the status quo. He said, I mean, like understanding, like intellectually assenting to a different worldview is one thing, but like actually living into it, that, that's a whole nother. How in the world were these early followers of Jesus so able to navigate the changes that they needed to make? He said, I'm not sure I could do it without some serious intervention, some serious outside help. And if Beach Dude said something like that, hypothetically, then I would hypothetically respond. That's a great question. And in fact, that question requires a little time to answer well, and so we're going to pick up that question the next time we get together. How in the world did these early Christians how did they discipline themselves to the point that they actually lived into these counterintuitive teachings and changed their world? Was it simply their own force of commitment or was there something else going on? And in fact, there was something else that happened that was so powerful and so compelling and I cannot wait to share it with you the next time 
that we're together. So I'd love to invite you to stand if you're in the room. Um, and you don't have to stand if you're online. It's okay. Just close your eyes and you know that. And uh, I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for believing in us. Thank you for seeing something in us that we often don't see in ourselves. Thank you for those first Christians who not only caught a vision for something better, but, but somehow made steps into living into that vision. Thank you for the way in which they were able to shape our world. And I also, uh, I can't help but think about how the ball is kind of in our hands. And I wonder what the revolution of love that, that Jesus unleashed on the world has to say in our time, in our generation, in our space. But for this moment, we just, once again, thank you for grace. Thank you that the stories of those early believers were passed on to us so faithfully so that we might learn from their example uh, to follow them as they follow Jesus. Uh, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. And we thank you, uh, most of all, for, for just the way that you love people who are not often lovable. And not because we are good, but because you are good. I pray that this week we would think of ourselves as sort of living sacrifices. And we might go into this world saying, you know, how can I serve? How can I help? And as we do, we pray that in small ways your kingdom would come and your will would be done. Here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we thank you for a beautiful day. We thank you for this place. We thank you for this community and all that you are doing in our midst. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We will see you next week for part six of Castaway.